1: Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this special episode, I am talking with Uwe Boll. Yes, we spoke with him years ago, probably about 10 years ago, when we were talking about the film Auschwitz, and now he is back rejuvenating his directing career through a fresh and novel comeback scheduled with his upcoming movie, 12 Hours. It is in pre-production as well as the film Ness, which sounds like it is also a potential go. Mr. Bull talks about that as well as about many other things, including the film Auschwitz and another film that I enjoy a lot, Postal. Hope you enjoy this interview, and I hope that you will check out Mr. Bull's films. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to speak with you again. And I'm so curious, what have you been up to lately? I know you kind of unofficially retired for a little bit there, and what led to that? Yeah, 2016,
0: basically after my rampage part number three, I felt like, okay, we are now in a totally different world, right? The streamers were coming up, but they were not right there, basically. And then the, but the video world was basically going away. It was over blockbuster and so on. So I felt for what? For the, how can I recoup a film? So I felt 2016, you know what? I call it a day. I mean, it was a big foodie. I'm still a big foodie. So I opened a restaurant in Vancouver, Bauhaus. We got good re- reviews, like high-end German food. I got a Michelin star rest, like Chef from Berlin, running it. But then a few years later, I started getting, in a way, itchy. You know, I love making films. I've made so many years, so many films, 34 films in total, in like 25 years, you can say. And that is uh, kind of busy. And so I started a documentary about the homeless and drug addict, crisis in Vancouver, what I produced. And then I went back 2020 when the corona hit basically to Germany with, my, with the family, closed the restaurant in Vancouver, started in Germany, getting more active again but with films. I shot the film Hanau, what is also out in the U.S., but it's German language. It's about a terror attack by Frankfurt. 2020, a guy shot nine migrants and then himself and his mother. I, I basically recreate the night where it happened. It's it's on Apple and Google and Amazon and so on, subtitled. And I started a documentary about the Banditos Motorcycle Club. And that is shooting since two years. And I continue. It's a more a long-term project to really portray what is going on with a club like I mean, the banditos and the health angels are the biggest in the world. You know, the the world runs. We were in Barcelona with them. where like five thousand banditos drove with the Harleys. It will be a very interesting doco because it's from the inside of the club, so it's not like law enforcement. It's it's more about what is actually a club like this. What are they doing? Are they all gangsters or what? What are they doing? So, and then I decided, German film is not really my cup of tea i like more international films and so i decided let's go back to real films bigger films yeah and we started basically developing some projects where in the next few years i want to do if it's possible a project a year and
1: moving forward back to films how did you even engage with the banditos and and get them to trust you and allow you that access that was an accident, basically. A good friend of mine, who I know since over 20 years,
0: he grew up with the Banditos' German president. And so we went for lunch together. And I pitched the idea and said, look, everybody thinks you're basically gangster. right? So everybody has the same opinion. And I'm sure there are gangsters in the Hells Angels and the Banditos, of course. But there is more to it, too. It's a brotherhood. It's a motorcycle club. They love to to do things together, and they have a big community. You know, when the Ukraine war hit, they collected in Barcelona at the world run almost half a million bucks for that to support Ukrainians, right? So it's not all negative. It's not all bad and all crime. There is a lot of things where they really take care of each other and... um. I want to show both sides, right? So that that the public opinion is this, and then what are they se- self saying? That a lot of times they don't they don't talk to people in general. They don't give interviews, right? And in my documentary, they do. The the thing is, my two main characters basically got now jail, and they're not in jail because they went in an appeal. But that complicates my whole documentary in a way. But also, of course, it makes it very interesting. You know, so I followed the trial and in the end, the charge was very low. They get only like two years prison term, but they wanted like the whole conspiracy and it's a criminal organization like the mafia and everything after 100 trial dates, it fell apart. Basically, the whole thing fell apart. And then they got like minor sales because they really wanted to get them. So they gave them prison term for like illegal weapon, selling weapons and having a weapon in possession where they didn't have the license for. So basically peanuts. But after 100 days in trial, on trial, there was only peanuts left. You know, and that is also a thing what I interviewed, of course, the state attorney and the German FBI people and stuff. And when you dig a little deeper, They know that they basically, you know, like the Hell's Angels also, but they just, they are very good targets for law enforcement because you see that, you know, where the clubhouse is. It's easy to target them. You know, it's hard to target the Italian mob because they're not like looking like the mob. And I think there is a lot of prejudgment and bullying against them, you know, like they take the Harleys away and make their life shitty and whatsoever. And That would, Doku would show that too. Like, there is a lot of, like, kind of injustice going because
1: they're so easy to find. You've never been one to shy away from potentially controversial topics. I mean, the the Auschwitz film that you made, just so many things. The world's a much different place now than in 2016, obviously. Where are you going to go? I mean, uh, other than this documentary, what do you want to start working on now? I have a few, like, for example, a TV series, like an 8 part miniseries,
0: Werewolves Walk. It's based on missing kids' cases, where, uh, like, with pedophiles and so on, like, exchanging kids, selling kids, and it's a very hot crime cop thriller. I hope we can get that off the ground, like, maybe next year. This year, I have that thriller 12 Hours, what I want to do, where somebody has to kill five people in 12 hours, or his family's dead. So, he has to do it against the clock, and he's not like the professional killer. So, it's not a Jason Statham film where you know, like, okay, he will just kill everybody. No, it has to be like this kind of where it's still in the casting process. And it's this kind of like it has to be somebody who is not necessarily able to do it mentally and physically. That is where we're working on right now. So, the plan is to shoot that in the first half of the upcoming year in South Africa. Yeah, and I have uh, Elliot Ness. It's the, the, the Butcher of Kingsbury run. It's uh, the last case Elliot Ness had in Cleveland before he retired and then shortly after he he died, uh, where he catched a serial murder. But this guy got basically off the hook because he was the cousin of a U.S. senator. And so he went in a mental ill institution instead of jail. So it was not the full-on victory for Elliot Ness. But I felt with this, why not? Kevin Costner coming back as Untouchable, you know? So, I mean, it would be amazing. The problem is he's so busy with Yellowstone that his agent said they don't even want to read it right now. But I hope I get the shot during the next eight months, nine months, you know, because, I mean, Untouchables is an absolute classic. It was a mega hit. And I totally believe that why Kevin Costa should not want to do this again? I mean, there is no reason to say I don't want to play Elliot Ness again because it was so a negative experience. I don't think it was a negative experience, and it was an amazing film. And I love films like this. I'm a big fan of genre films, and a lot of things now are like there is not a lot of clear genre out there. Everything has to be a big drama at the same time, and I, you know, and I feel like sometimes
1: it's it's a good time for for genre. That's one thing I always appreciated about you is that you have such a great mix of actors, both really big name actors. I remember you working with Ray Liotta and Burt Reynolds and just people that are super well established, but then also taking a chance on smaller actors, people just coming up in their career and really people that a lot of people would end up going on to great things. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the folks that you've kind of helped out over the years? Yeah, in Heart of America, there was Elizabeth
0: Moss in her first big part. I mean, now with Handmaid's Tale and everything, a big, mega star. Nate Parker in Tunnel Rats, in my Vietnam War film, where I cast only young guys, basically from L.A., upcoming actors. And then he made a very good career, was nominated for an Oscar for, the, for that we played there. That was the birth of a nation, like the new birth of nation. So... I mean, look at on Postal, for example, Zach Ward, I think, was amazing as the Postal dude, Brandon Fraser, in Rampage. It's a mix, right? So you you never know what will happen to them. In Blood Rain was Matt Davis. And Matt Davis, at that point, he was a, in a big film with Colin Farrell. And everybody thought, like, he would be up big. And then he went nowhere. I don't know where Matt Davis is. So it's hit that miss, right? So I think I gave people chances, like the Postal editor, julian clark he did deadpool he's a mega editor now and then Foster was his first real feature film he he edited for for example that is also the fun of it you never know what happens with the people you work with and if you if you meet somebody on the peak or if if he's just upcoming but elizabeth moss when you rewatch heart of america about the school violet she played a teenager basically you felt immediately in besides her the other teenagers that she had something. So you could feel that even when she was like seventeen, that there is a little more to it as you see from other teenager actresses or actors you you had in, in, in films. Yeah. It's good to work with big names too, of course, for the sales value. And if the budget of a movie is high, you need some bigger names. But on the other hand, it doesn't help if they don't fit. You know, if you think if you think it's completely out of touch. And that was the thing for Burt Reynolds and In the Name of the King. I really liked him in that part. But everybody like some people were flipping out on it and said, Reynolds you know, in a period piece, kind of fantasy felt It's cheesy. But I think he was in that age now. You know, this kind of grateful old age where the king should be in a way. So that is why I like his performance. And and when we shot he said, Oh, this, by the way, over the only film I ever died. In my whole career, you know, so he put really something in it. No, I loved
1: working with him. He was a great guy. For a little while there, you were kind of the video game guy, like so many video game adaptations. Do you feel that that's still a viable economic model? Do you still want to make video game adaptations?
0: Not really. It made sense at that point, because also when you see like A House of the Dead, it made almost 30 billion in home video alone. You know, with a film that cost co- 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 under 10 million bucks to make, it made sense. And there was also the thing when, you know, when all the critics hammered me because I made one after the other, *London in the Dark and Blood Rain and Far Cry and so on. I said also, yeah, but I'm not a subsidized filmmaker. I mean, I have to go where the money that, you know, and not the money to get rich, not the money that the film gets made. A lot of my passion projects like Auschwitz or Darfur. I was only able to make because I made the bigger films and then I didn't bought myself a Ferrari. I instead shot Auschwitz. That should be in a way out there that the people see also that I'm a real filmmaker who likes making films and who's doing films based on passion and out of a political point of view. You know, the Auschwitz film didn't come from alone. It came really from... Me going in schools and I found out people don't know anymore what Auschwitz was. And I felt, okay, so it's time to show the gas chamber because that was Auschwitz. It was not the the boy in the strip pyjama, big melodrama, whatever. No, people got killed and killed and killed. And I think that one focus on that film was important that, if, of course, if, if that would be the only film about the Holocaust, it would be ridiculous. But there was none film about what the Holocaust really did. And and I think that was important to make that film. In Israel, it was running. It's still in the Yad Vashem Museum. They have it there as a copy, and they showed it various times because they felt more that it makes total sense to show it in that kind of blunt, in-your-face thing. But, of course, in the film world, they're looking more for the uplifting story in the Dark Ages, you know, but sometimes there is no uplifting storm. So that is why I make films like Stafur the same. You know, when 500,000 people got hacked into pieces and we all did nothing. The NATO did nothing. The Blue Helmets did nothing. So the question is, why? Maybe because Sudan had no oil for us? That is why we didn't stop it. I am with the Soda Wall Street the same. I try to put finger in the wound where it hurts and say, yeah, but... That is what, what I think filmmakers are good for. It's like kind of a history writing after the fact to say, look, but we saw
1: we made a mistake, we, we've, we dropped the ball and let it all happen. Do you think you'll take on any of the current political situation in the United States, especially looking back at like a January 6th?
0: I felt it's almost time for Postal Part 2 because I see that more as a satire, like Catch-22, like this kind of spirit, it would have to be uh, behind the politics of the last three, four years, insanity, but not only in the U.S., everywhere. I mean, we we had Corona, then we had the Ukraine war now, everything, you know, the Qatar World Championship, soccer, we're living in a total absurd world where money rules everything in a way, and there is no, you can buy the law, basically. You know, now where Elon Musk has Twitter, you think like, okay, first he says, everybody can Twitter what they want, then people Twitter against him, then he deletes them from Twitter. So, you know, it's like, the, it's kind of total, the mini Hitler Elon, you know, I mean, it's crazy, but but it's it's really going that, that way. And with Trump, I mean, what else a human person would have to do before you prosecute him? You know, that is what I, what I don't get. I mean, there was an insurrection. There were five or six dead people. And that storm on the Capitol would never happen without him supporting it. And he could stop it in his speech. If he would say, you know what? Okay, I lost. But next time we win, right? Then you wouldn't have, you would have five more people living. And that this has no crime, no no criminal prosecution. And they have endless debate about it and endless investigations about it, but other people would be just in jail waiting for their trial, and and you know, and he's just doing whatever he wants, and he was running again. That is very absurd. We're working on a on a script longer. what, what is a satire? Where me and a few other writers with where we have a a scenario like the third world war started. But everybody's completely surprised, and nobody wants to in the, wants to recognize. You know, you see the balls like on the horizon, like one from Iran, one from North Korea, then thousand from China, thousand from Europe, thousand from Russia. It just flies on the horizon at the beginning of the film, and everybody like like it, looking like a tennis match, like so. Okay, let's keep going with our poker game, but we have only forty seven minutes left, and we're all toast basically. There is only black humor, I think, what we can how we can go through this. And I'm a big Bill Mayer fan on on HBO. What I like is that he also hurts the Democrats. You know, that he says, look, you're in your, let's say, balloony world, you don't see how you lose fifty percent of the voters. You know, I think that is is a thing what, what a lot of times the Democrats don't see is that they throw people so off the boat with this woke policies and whatever, right, that they, that they say, okay, then I'll vote for the Republicans. And I think that is a big problem, what the Democrats face, right? I think they could have way more voters if sometimes
1: they would be a little more down-to-earth in their policies. I'm so glad to hear that you're still Doing some comedy work because I love your comedies. I love Postal. I love German Fried movies. So I'm so glad that you can still revel in that absurdism.
0: It has to be blunt, like what Postal was, right? Postal was insulting, blunt, but everybody got insulted. And that I think makes it worthwhile that the people think, you know what, I just have to take it. And I think that is also this mind police, what also Bill Mayer or Chappelle and these people are calling out, Bill Burr or people like this, you know, you say like, no, like we, there is not, you cannot say it. You cannot make a joke about that. And I think it's it's obvious when you look at the comedies. I mean, when was when the last comedy similar even to Hangover? Like it's not existing anymore because I think in the writer's room, they're all like, they cannot do this joke. You cannot do that joke. You cannot do this joke. So then you have no comedy. I think the key of comedy is that you say, give me shit. Whatever is funny, we, we will do. it. That is what, what I would go for. If I do another comedy, the problem would be, of course, to get the streamers or whatever to say, look, we want this, you know, we want a political incorrect show and not, not a, Political incorrect show who isn't real, totally political correct. Then I think is, is important. If you go comedy, you have to do it for real. And I think people are hungry for comedy. You know, I was shocked when Seth Rogan said some of his films aged bad, and I disagree. You know, super bad or whatever. I think it's funny, and and you know, and I think he shouldn't regret the films he made at the time. What made him? Where he would be without a Jonah Hill? Where would they be without the totally ridiculous, like under the belt comedies they did? But that is why people like that. You know, and I, I, I think it's it's not good to just try now to fit in and don't hurt anybody. People need to get hurt. You know, That you have to feel like insulted from time to time so that you open your horizon. You have to learn.
1: How many projects are you working on at a time in order to get that one where it's actually in front of the cameras? At least three, like to get something going. And I had various
0: German projects. I had a German project, Germany in winter, what Netflix wanted to do it. And then the guy from Netflix who wanted to do it changed the office, basically. He was not responsible for German films anymore. So, and then the follow-up woman, she passed on it she said it's way too violent we cannot do this and it's basically the idea was that the german right wing party takes over in a few in 10 years and then just burn all the migrant homes and drive with like ships over the refugee boats like a total new reich but i didn't show it like and that that was for me important. I wanted to show them doing all of this, but I didn't have a hero. I didn't want the guy to fight them. I said, no, I want to do a really dystopian situation where everybody has the same opinion that we're doing now. There are no humans anymore. That do dehumanization. What happened also of course in the in the second world war and what is always the reason for genocide. You know, like that when that people think the other people are no humans, we can just kill them like like insects and you see in europe in italy now she's a fascist ruling in hungary in poland all right wing people you know in germany they so far have only 10% of the votes in france they have already 30 35% of the votes and i think that is a huge threat to democracy as it is with a trump in us so you know and i think we have to be very careful that in europe that we handle immigration properly, you know, they they're coming in different. As U.S. can in a way block migrants better off, you know. So and it's inhuman how they do it. But in Europe, they're just coming because you can fly from Tunisia from Morocco and just go in an airplane, hundred bucks, and you're in Paris. It's like yeah, so you know, or you go over the over the ocean, you know, whatever. But so, but now the key for the European migration policy has to be okay. Now they're here. And then how can we handle it that, for example, if we don't accept them, that we bring them back, but we have to help them in Africa. And that is where we totally drop the ball as, as Europe. We're totally failing in making Africa livable. You know, as long that doesn't work, they will all always come. And then they are in a container, they're hanging out, they are not allowed to work, you have people radicalizing themselves, getting super Muslim, like Islamistic. You have all that problems based on basically a totally wrong handling of the thing. And also, like, if I have to wait two years before I have to leave, then I'm already, in a way, migrated. And then they want to throw you out, you know, and it throws them totally off. They have no more contact to Syria. So you cannot just send me back to Syria. That is a very big problem where Europe, only as Europe together, could handle it. But they all have totally different agendas, different different proposals. And like one example, in Berlin, coming every day, every single day at the railway station, around 100 children from Spain with a train, where the parents sent them, they're all from Africa, so they sent them on purpose, without parents, to Berlin in a train, 100 per day. So, and nobody stops it. Since one and a half years. So what happens that? They have to go to the orphanage. Then they say, where are your parents? They're in Spain. They want to come too. So now they, you know, because the Spanish government wants to get rid of that and want, want the parents also going to Germany. So the Germans say, don't let them go in the train. Stop them going into the train. But it never happens because nobody cares. They just say they have to leave. So get them German, you know. So And there are a lot of things where I, I don't think you know somebody. make anybody Knows anything about that? But if you live in Europe and you look a little deeper into it, it's so a shit show where you feel like nobody works together. You always think the EU everybody works together, but they don't. It's it's total chaos, and the borders so, are open. Don't forget, you can when you're in Spain, you can come into Germany without any control through France. There is no passport control, no identity control. You can go in any bus, any car. Uh-huh,
1: and you just drive to Germany. I would have thought that the news from the other day about the uh, coup being planned in Germany, I thought that would have been a bigger story here in the United States. But it was played on Monday, and now I don't hear about it anymore. They would never pull the coup off, that guys, right? But there are a lot of
0: people, they want to overturn the government as in the US, right? So, so, but, but they don't have it in there right now. They don't have the weapons. They don't. They, they don't have the, the followers. And it was a little overplayed in the media also, like that's 3,000 police officers, you know, but there was no shootout or something. It was just like they raped the doorbell and arrested them. But the the main question stays, like, why German citizens living in houses, going to jobs, meeting secretly to overturn the government? So, what, what, you know, like, why is that happening? So, something is wrong in the in the. Public opinion about the government, about what we're doing here. And of course, in that case, they are right corner nuts. They are totally racists. They don't want any migrants, right? So, and th- that is, that is the key issue for them. Why the, they are with the alternative for Germany, like the right wing party, what is in the parliament? And they are totally in cohorts with them. And of course, the end game for them would be to take over. You know, and then there are no more elections. Then it's just like, nah, now we stay and our rules matter here. Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, we will see how it all goes. But definitely COVID crisis plus the Ukraine war, where now people getting electricity bills, gas bills, double, triple as, as they were before brings more people to the right corner party because they were totally. Let Ukraine die, <laughs> you know. They would say like, "No support for Ukraine." We get the cheap gas from Putin back, and everything is fine. So that that is, and, and I bet there are at least twenty five percent of Germans exactly that opinion. So they don't get it that if you give more and more in, in the end, you pay triple for the gas because otherwise, and then Putin comes in your country. So that is what they don't get: like that you have to stop it.
1: Right there, where it is right now, in Ukraine. You cannot let it take Ukraine. I know you're going to be making a film in South Africa. Are you planning on going back to Vancouver and kind of having that be one of your bases of operation? Or are you going to live more in Germany and kind of use that as where you're making most of your work? It's both. So my plan was to shoot
0: Werewolves Walk in Vancouver. But for now, I mean, it's also for South Africa. It's better to fly from here 10 hours from UFS. It's 20 I don't make a prediction. You know, I said to my family also, like, Ukraine war goes totally off board back in Vancouver. I mean, we're not staying here five hours away from the front line and keep gambling what's what's happening. I mean, right now, it doesn't look dangerous for the NATO countries, but every, everything is possible, you know. I like to live personally in Europe more because it's just more culture and more... You know, we drive a lot of times to Strasbourg, to France, two hours, great food. It's like so close together, totally different countries. And it's so easy to travel inside in Europe, like an hour, you're in Barcelona. You know, it's it's with an airplane. So it's nice. My wife is from Vancouver and she loves Germany too. But I will go there where we shoot, basically where we can do a film. I would would be there. Have
1: you continued doing your boxing?
0: Just my, do my daily like, chin-ups and stuff like this. But I'm, I'm not actively boxing anymore. Too old. And uh, I go biking. I walk the dog. So, <laughs> But
1: I'm watching boxing still. And I'm a big fan still, of course. Dr. Bolt, I can't wait to see your next project. I'm really looking forward to, to having more Uwe Boll films out in the world. I'm super excited about this. And I hope that we can talk again in less than 10 years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we will soon, uh, I think, getting something done. It's a little harder today with the casting because they have, in earlier years, right, they did the film stars were doing films and now everybody's doing everything. I mean, you have Jura Roberts playing TV series. You know, like it's, it's this kind of like harder to get actors because they're getting massive offers from streaming TV shows and stuff like this. So you have to compete against this. On the other hand, you have also some actors that have now a value based on the streaming show. And then, you know, and that is also tough with our packaging agents and the casting agency, like who has the value. It's not so easy to decide when you, when you think like, okay, I saw that TV show. That guy was really good, but I never saw him in anything. And then you think, okay, is has he the same value? as an actor, or whatever, John Cusack, who we all know since 25 years. So what is the value in today's film world? It's not so easy to make it happen, basically, you know, to say, okay, that makes sense, that doesn't
1: make sense, and he fits together with this person and so on. Yeah, the landscape has changed so much, but if anybody's going to navigate that, I have total faith that you'll be able to do it. I will. But in 12 hours, it's it's even harder, as, as Elliot Ness in the way. It's
0: Cheaper to shoot as Elliot Ness because Elliot Ness is in the 50s in Cleveland. But in 12 hours, we have a father and his son. The son is the lead. And then we need the father and he has a son. So now you need three people in the cast. They look kind of alike. So, you know, and that is the problem, you know. So when you talk to an actor and then you think, okay, but would anybody believe that he's actually the son from that actor? And so it forces you totally in the casting when they say, "Okay, that guy could have interest in it." You say, "Yeah, but look, we having an offer out to the younger guy who that they totally don't fit together." So that is the the hustle. What well, is not easy because I'm as a film fan myself, I would recognize it if they could. You know, I would say that could never be the father, and the movie would be over for me. So I have to be super careful with what I'm doing. In regards of that main cast people in the in the film
1: well thank you so much for your time good luck with everything and i hope you have a great holiday season okay
0: than
1: I love you.